Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. It is wonderful to sing these songs. It is wonderful to be reminded of the Christmas story. Great to hear Luke chapter 2 just now uh, read and thinking about what happened there. I'm going to go to maybe what you wouldn't think of as a typical Christmas passage, but I absolutely think it is a vital Christmas text. It is in Hebrews chapter 2. The reason I am choosing this passage in particular is because this text in a unique way really gets at the reason why Jesus came and took on flesh, why Jesus was incarnate, why He took on a human body and a human nature. So Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction for where we are in Hebrews, and then we'll walk through a few points together. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. This is God's Word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would help this passage to be illuminated by your Spirit that we would see the real meaning that is actually there in this passage, and that it would help inform us as we think about the birth of Christ, especially this weekend. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, four points. Don't fear it's not going to be a super long sermon tonight, but I'm going to give you four uh, points for this message. The question is really, why Christmas? Why did Jesus become human? We've already heard about this in the songs that we've sung. These songs are so uh, informed theologically that that we've already heard these truths uh, that I'm about to discuss. But why Christmas? Why did Jesus become human? I'm going to give you the four points here. Number one, to defeat the devil. Number two, to free us from the fear of death. Number three, to make propitiation for our sin before God. And number four, to become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, there's no way you could follow all that. I'm just, if I give you just the four words, okay? Two, D, two Ds, two Ps, okay? Death, the, you got devil, death, propitiation, and priest. If you can hold on to those four words, you've got my outline. So devil, death, propitiation, and priest. So in an unusual way, Uh, Hebrews just tells us the reason for Jesus coming into this world. But before I get into the main part of the passage, uh, let me share with you just a little setup to the book of Hebrews. Turn with me back to the first chapter of this book. We won't overview Hebrews at this moment, but I'll just say a word about Hebrews. Throughout the whole book of Hebrews, the author is comparing and contrasting Jesus with various other things especially other individuals from the Old Testament. And he keeps saying, you might be tempted to think Moses is greater than Jesus, but he is not. You might think angels are greater than Jesus, but he is not. And on and on, Joshua and the high priest and on and on. No, Jesus is greater than anyone and anything else in all the world. 
Well, this may not be a struggle that you have, but the struggle that these particular people had was the idea that angels might be greater than Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, that has not been a personal temptation of my own, but that is the issue of this particular audience, and why do you think that was? Well, in the first century, angels were seen, like you see in the Christmas story, as these glorious supernatural beings. You can picture them 20 feet tall, perhaps, shining with light, terrifying when they see their soldiers, angelic hosts of soldiers of the Lord. That they would be frightening to meet an angel. As we heard last week, they always begin their conversation by saying, do not be afraid, <laughs> because you're afraid when you see an angel. And yet Jesus to the audience that the Hebrews is speaking to, Jesus may not have looked quite as grand and glorious as an angel. I mean, he was a man, not an angel. In fact, if anything, he was a man who got spit on. He was a man who was beat up. He was a man who was crucified in shame and ignominy. No angel has ever experienced a brutal death. No angel has ever experienced that kind of treatment. And yet, we're supposed to elevate Jesus above angels? And that was the debate that was going on, and that's the setting for these chapters. Let's zero in here. On the first chapter, the author wants to elevate Jesus as being truly God, truly divine. Look at these opening verses of chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is, Jesus is, the radiance of of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. Now, just stop there. To say that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God the Father is to put Jesus on the same level as God the Father, as being equally divine. Astonishing statement there. Continue here in the middle of the verse, verse 3. And He upholds, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Look at verse 8. Of the Son, he, that is God the Father, of the Son, he, God the Father, says, this is the Father speaking to God the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. If you look carefully at that verse, which is quoting Psalm 45, the Father calls Jesus God. And then we're told that Jesus, who is called God, has a God which means there's two persons, both divine. That's the the doctrine of the Trinity. That's the Father and the Son. And then, of course, you also have the Holy Spirit. So chapter 1 has said Jesus is truly God. He is truly divine. He is equal with the Father. And then chapter 2 takes quite a shift in the gear. Look at chapter 2. The emphasis now is on Jesus as a truly human being, a true man. Skip with me down to verse 10, chapter 2. For it was fitting that He, that's God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, that's believers, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source or one Father. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise partook of the same things. So let's not miss the obvious here with this first part. The children, this is those God's children who are to be saved, all believers who have ever lived and ever will live are the children of God. And we are told that God has given these children to Jesus, and Jesus is going to purchase them. He's going to rescue them from their sin. But how is He going to do that? Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. So do you see, in order for Jesus to save human beings who have flesh and blood, who are mortal, who can die, who can get sick, who can, whose bodies can fail, in order to save human beings who have flesh and blood, He Himself had to likewise partake of the same things. He had to take on flesh and blood. He had to become truly human. He had to become mortal. Now, I just want to say here, it tells you now the purpose. He likewise, verse 14, partook of the same things, that's humanity, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil. Now, do you see this? Jesus took on a human nature. You see the baby in the manger. You think of that baby in the manger in the feeding trough. And you think about the arms and the legs wrapped in the swaddling cloths lying there. And you think about the shepherds who come to see Him. The reason why Jesus is laying there as a baby in that manger, the reason why He has arms and legs at all, is ultimately so that one day those arms and legs can be nailed to a Roman cross. That's, that's the reason. He took on flesh and blood so that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus took on a human nature in the, in the manger, in, in the birth of Jesus. Why? So that His body could ultimately be mocked, spit upon, beaten, and crucified. That is the ultimate purpose for which He came. Now, what would He do through His death? So point number one, He will defeat the devil. Let's read verse 14 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, let me, let me explain what Satan is and does in the Bible, among other things. One thing, the word uh, Satan means the accuser. And what Satan does is he loves to make accusation. This starts back in the Old Testament. Remember Job? God's, Satan comes to uh, God and says, the only reason Job is following you is because you treat him well in his circumstances. And if you take away his positive circumstances, he will curse you to your face. So Satan is, what is he doing? He's accusing Job of false faith, right? You look at Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest is standing before God. The angel of the Lord is present. And Joshua represents the people of God before God. And as Joshua stands there, his clothes are covered in filth, literally excrement. His clothes are covered in filth. And he stands in the place of the high priest. And this is absurd to be dressed in filth before God and in his presence. And what, who is standing next to the high priest? Satan, the accuser. And what is Satan about to do? He's about to say, Lord, your people are filthy in sin. They don't deserve to be in your presence. You should cast them out. He's accusing them. And then before Satan can even cast his accusation in Zechariah 3, the Lord says, I know my people are covered in filth. They're like a charred stick sticking out of a burning fire. I am pulling them out of that fire. And he takes Joshua's clothes and he they were removed and they were replaced with spotless robes representing the great exchange of our sins being removed and taken by Jesus and his spotless righteousness clothing us. And guess what? Once Joshua is wearing those perfect clothes, Satan 
has nothing whereby he can accuse God's people anymore. Because now there's no ground for accusation. Or you could also think about Revelation chapter 12. There's a debate about what exactly is being referred to here, but whatever is being referred to at heart, you know this must be true. Because of Jesus' death, Satan is ultimately defeated, and we are told that the one who accuses us day and night before God has been thrown down, and he's been conquered by the blood of the Lamb. It's because of what Christ has done for us that the mouth of the accuser has been silenced. Think about Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. No one can bring any charge against us, including Satan, the great accuser. So Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that no accusation could be left. One of my favorite texts, we looked at it this past summer, is from Colossians 2. Just listen to this. God forgave all our trespasses in Christ. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So Satan is triumphed over by Christ's death on the cross in our place. Point number two, why Christmas? Jesus took on flesh. Number two, to, to free us from the fear of death to free us from the fear of death. Look with me at verse 15 again. And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To free all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Let me take you to another passage. Hold your spot here. Turn to your left to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 15. Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 15, I think this fear here is the same kind of fear that the author of Hebrews is referring to. Romans 8, 15, speaking to believers, those who are led by the Spirit of God or sons of God, verse 14, now 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Now, do you see here? There are really two options in that, in that passage. Either I am outside of Christ, I don't have His Spirit, and I have instead the spirit of fear and bondage, and I am a slave to fear, or... I have the Spirit of God in me, and I have great confidence that God is my Father and that I am an heir with Christ and I'm heading towards glory in Christ. See, the fear here is referring to fear of dying as an unbeliever, dying outside of Christ, dying in the state of my sin. That's the fear. And listen, people today who don't even say that they believe in God or believe in Jesus or believe in Christianity or say that they, they just say they don't believe in the Bible, there is still an immense fear of death. It is the great fear. I've said before, the one last thing that you're not allowed to talk about in our culture, I mean, people will talk about everything. There is no off-topic subject anymore except death. In serious conversation, you cannot have a real and lingering conversation on the topic of death with just a, a fellow employee at work or with someone you're, you're walking. You bring the topic up, everyone goes cold because no one wants to spend five minutes speaking of that topic. Why? Because there is a slavery that we have to the fear of death. Death seems to make everything in our life futile. Let me read a quote here from a, a pastor. 
The fear of death is something mankind still faces today. You know, despite all of our technology and medical advances, this is unchanged. How much of our business or our frenzy for entertainment is mainly an attempt to divert our gaze from the shadow death casts across our lives? Death is not merely an event that awaits us, but the power that rules us now. The leaven of futility that permeates all our achievements and denies our soul's peace and contentment is the fear of death. And those who do not know the Lord, if they're being honest, that is a real thing. And yet Jesus came to die to take away the ultimate fear of death. R.C. Sproul, who passed away in 2017, he said, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of dying. And we understand, I think, what he means. The process of dying is certainly something that, that can make all of us nervous. But he said, death itself is not something I'm afraid of because I know where I am going. I know I'm covered by Christ's blood. I know I'm heading towards an eternity with Him. I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of dying in some degree, but I am not afraid ultimately of death itself. And Christ came to set us free from slavery to the fear of death. Point number three. Why Christmas? Jesus came to make propitiation for our sin before God. Look at Hebrews 2. Verses 16 and 17, and I'll explain what propitiation is if that's not a familiar word. Hebrews 2.16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let me, let me stop there, just in case there's confusion. That doesn't mean that you have to be a Jew to be helped by Jesus. You don't have to become an ethnic Jew to be helped by Jesus. We become the offspring of Abraham by trusting in Christ. Galatians 3 says, all who are in Christ are Abraham's offspring. So this promise is true of all true believers who have the faith of our father Abraham. And when it says Christ helps us, it, literally the word means to grab hold of, to help. It's a, he seizes us to grab us, to pull us to safety, to help us. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A couple things here. Number one, there are many hundreds of priests throughout the Old Testament period, and not a single one of those priests offered anything other than the animals for sacrifice. And no matter how many bulls and goats were offered, it could never ultimately deal with people's consciences and their deep sense of sinfulness. Jesus is the first priest to offer the final sacrifice for sin, and He offers himself. Flip over to Hebrews 7, right next to us here. Hebrews 7. We read the end of that chapter, verse 26 and 27. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You can turn back to chapter 2. What is this word propitiation? Simplest way I know how to say this, this is an important term in the Bible. I'm thankful some modern translations keep the word in the English translation. Propitiation is a good word to know. What this means is God has a righteous indignation or anger against all of us left in our sin. God is a good judge, and the good judge of all the earth will do what is right. We, all of us, have broken God's laws in more ways than we realize. 
We have violated God's commandments. We have done things that dishonor Him. We have loved His creation over the Creator. We have lied. We have manipulated. We have bent the truth, twisted the truth. We have idolized creation and money. We've idolized reputation and all these different things. And not because God is evil, but because God is good. God has a righteous anger against our sin. And that anger is not something we should apologize for. It's not something we should be embarrassed about. We would be embarrassed if God did not have righteous anger against what is evil. Now, what would you feel about a God who looks at the Holocaust and feels nothing but happiness? There would be something wrong. The Lord feels righteous anger towards our sin. But propitiation is this. God sent Jesus as a perfect substitute, and God poured out His righteous wrath against our sin on Christ so that God's wrath could be satisfied. It could be completely exhausted on Christ and removed and taken away so that anyone who trusts in Christ no longer has to fear death and future wrath because the sting of death has been removed and God's wrath has been satisfied. And now we have nothing but God's love and delight in Christ given to us all by sheer grace. And that's all because of Christmas. If there had been no Christmas, there would be no appeasing of God's righteous wrath. Jesus came on a rescue mission. You, you do understand there is something offensive about the true message of Christmas. You, you, know, you know the offensive part of the message? The offensive part of Christmas is to say, you need to be rescued. In other words, Christmas is offensive because it offends our basic pride. It says, you're not good enough. You can't save yourself. You need someone to come from outside and rescue you. I read a story just over the, over the last couple of days, random story from years, a few years ago. A woman was in a boat, uh, and the boat was on, got, got stuck in a current, and it went over a small dam, which is kind of like a small waterfall. The boat capsized. This woman was in her mid-60s. She was caught on two little life preservers out in the middle, and the water kept pulling her back under the waterfall and then back out again. She could not get free, and she was waiting to die. She had been out there in the water for 30-plus minutes, and a construction crew that was building a walking bridge uh, over this body of water uh, saw her, and they tried to figure out what they could do. It was very hard to swim to where she was, and so they had a construction crane that was going to be moving heavy material nearby, and so one of the guys in the crew grabbed some metal chains, he attached them to the crane, and he used it as a harness. He sat down in this metal chain, and the crane operator, uh, he turned it, and he sent this thing out way out over the water, like way out over the water. And there was a photographer who happened to be nearby, took a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph of this moment. And this, this construction worker is hanging, risking his own life way out over the water, right next to the waterfall. And this poor woman is sitting there nearly drowning. She can't do anything to save herself. And here's this man reaching out there with this strong arm you can see in the picture. And he reaches out and he finally, he grabs her. And as soon as he grabs her arm, he never lets go. He grabs her hand. He pulls her up by one arm, he grabs her by the other arm, he hoists her up like this, wraps his legs around her legs, holds her like in this position, and the crane operator gets them up, pulls them to safety, and they interviewed that woman afterwards, and she was just overwhelmed by this man's act of courageous uh, uh, risking of his life to save her, a complete stranger. Now listen, we're all moved when we see stories like that. That's it's an amazing thing in God's common grace that those kinds of things happen in the world. When you see stories like that, I hope you think about what God has done for us in Christ. See, we are in a desperate state on our own. Do you know that? 
In my sin, I'm like that woman on the verge of drowning. In fact, I'm actually dead in my sin. It's even worse than that. I have no hope left to myself. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his son. He sent his son at Christmas. And Jesus lived that perfect life. He died a death as a substitute, bearing our sin, taking our place so that we can have his arm reach out and grasp us and pull us to safety when there was no way that we could have rescued ourselves at this time. That is the glorious good news. Now let's move to the fourth point. Why Christmas? Jesus had to become, for our sake, a merciful and faithful high priest. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I heard this quote, read this quote, Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Do you understand that? So we tend to think Jesus can't really relate to us because he never sinned. We sin, we have all kinds of things we've done that are wrong in our life. Jesus can't really relate. How can he really sympathize with us? He's never sinned. The answer is he can sympathize in some ways more so because he's never sinned. Because if I am tempted and tempted and tempted and eventually give in, then I only know a certain amount of the temptation. But if Jesus resisted temptation all the way until the end and never gave in, he actually knows more about temptation than you do or than I do because he never gave in to temptation. So if there's any tour guide who has been into that difficult place and has gotten out alive, he is the one who can lead us in our temptations and deliver us out in our time of need. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. Now I'm going to close now, but I want to close with a long quote. So so hang with me here. It's a long quote from Charles Spurgeon. I don't know of a better way to end as he speaks about Jesus' triumph over Satan. I hope this is an encouragement to you, and then we'll pray and sing again. From Charles Spurgeon, quote, The devil takes up our diary, and he turns over the page, and with black finger points to our sins, and he reads scornfully with a leer upon his countenance. See here, saint, he says, saint, a fine saint you were. There, evil thought of unbelief. There, departure from the living God. And he turns over page after page, and he stops over some very black page, and he says, see here, David, do you remember Bathsheba? Lot, do you remember Sodom in the cave? Noah, do you remember the vineyard and the drunkenness? And it makes even the saint quiver when sin stares him in the face, when the ghosts of his old sins rise up and stare upon him. Were it not for the death of Christ, you can easily conceive what power the devil would have over us in the hour of our death, because he would fling in all our sins in our teeth just when we came to die. But now see how through death Christ has taken away the devil's power to do that. We reply to the temptations to sin, in truth, O Satan, you are right. I have rebelled. I will not contradict my conscience and my memory. O Satan, turn to the blackest page of my history and I will confess all. But, O fiend, let me tell you, my sins were numbered on the scapegoat's head of old. Go, Satan, to Calvary's cross and see my substitute bleeding there. Behold, my sins are not mine. They are laid on his eternal shoulders and he has cast them from his own shoulders into the depths of the sea. Ah, said an older saint once, who had been much tempted by Satan, at last I got rid of these temptations, sir, and I enjoyed much peace. How did you do it? 
a younger Christian friend said, I showed him blood, sir. I showed him the blood of Christ. That is a thing the devil cannot endure. You may tell the devil, oh, but I prayed so many times. He will sniff at your prayers. You may tell him, ah, but I was a preacher. He will laugh in your face and tell you your preaching was your own condemnation. You may tell him you had some good works, and he will lift them up and say, these are your good works, these filthy rags. No one would have them as a gift. You may tell him, ah, but I have repented. He will sneer at your repentance. You may tell him what you like. He will sneer at you till at last you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And it is all over with the devil then. There is nothing now that he can do. For the death of Christ has destroyed the power that the devil had over us to tempt us on account of our guilt. The sting of death is sin. Our Jesus took the sting away, and now death is harmless to us because it is not followed by condemnation. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of sin that you would show us that left to ourselves, we, we really are in eternal trouble because of our sin. That we, like that woman, are on the verge of death in that river and we need someone to come and rescue us. Moral improvement projects, religious activities, trying to do a certain list of good works, these things will not ultimately set us free. It is only Christ who came, who lived, who died, who rose, and who ascended, and who is coming again, who can offer full and free forgiveness and can actually defeat Satan and all of his accusations because of his finished work for us. Help us, Lord, to receive that by faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.